Hello, welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons, and I'm joined by my colleagues Claire Fox and Alastair Donalds to muse about the news. And the big story uh, this week has been, bizarrely, about the President's Club party at the Dorchester Hotel, in which very rich elderly or middle-aged men uh, were entertained and by hostesses paid not very much and uh, some of them proceeded to uh, engage with those hostesses in a rather sort of far too informal manner i.e. groping and all sorts of comments were made that was regarded as the sort of the latest example of the sexism that is rife in society today so I just wondered what uh, you thought about that Claire. I think Initially, when I heard this story, I was unsurprised that there might be instances where um, the leaders of our great corporations and our great industries might behave badly over a few drinks, and uh, they certainly have been exposed as doing that. But I just cannot feel any great sense of shock that this is the case. I think the most significant thing about the President's Club is the way that a story that it's perfectly reasonable to tell. Um, this is, um, uh, you know, behaviour that is, you know, lewd, uh, annoying, uh, you know, not not savoury by any stretch, has become a major political issue, exposed by the Financial Times as somehow indicative of what's happening in uh, uh, those leading um, uh, uh, the economy, um, and has led to resignations at a senior political level somebody from the department for education um has has gone um who's also on the charity board has led to the charity closing down has led to major children's charities um handing back you know up to a couple of million pounds those who haven't feeling as though they're under pressure to hand back that charitable money because it was one of those events where they have auctions People bid extraordinarily over-the-top amounts of money for silly, daft, uh, uh, ludicrous prizes, um, and so on and so forth. So the fact that this kind of outrage culture has led to so much, it seems almost faux outrage about something which is not, for me, particularly the worst thing that I've ever heard in my life about what's happening at the top of business Uh strikes me as telling us a lot about today but not necessarily a lot about the patriarchy and the exploitation of women but more about the outrage culture that's destroying lives reputations and distorting our priorities yeah i think the the surprise is definitely less the that this sort of event happens i mean a bunch of rich people gather in an executive gathering i mean it's not so much of a surprise that that that, that this sort of thing happens and i don't think uh, most people would be surprised to hear about it the the surprise to me is you walk into the news agent in the morning and every single front page uh, newspaper cover has has this on um and you check social media and the world's going completely mad about the whole thing. Um, and with with a sense of glee as well. I mean, the, the leaking of the guest list now has just created this momentum behind, uh, you know, everybody, uh, this demand that everybody is, uh, needs to apologise or that people are sacked, which is, you know, dangerously authoritarian in its, in its underpinning. So I think it, there's, a, there's a lot of problems about this that I think are, are worth sort of unpicking. Um, I, a, a couple of sort of adjacent points. I mean, this is happening, this story, um, the expose by the Financial Times. I mean, the undercover work. I, I, I really 
panic about this because I am really worried about the decline of investigative journalism. I want there to be many more undercover stories and exposés, and I'm a free press person who believes that these kind of uh, uh, stories should be told. And this is kind of the biggest investigative story. And, I mean, if you'd have actually seen the public advert, which was men's only club advertising for hostesses who were told what kind of underwear to wear and that they had to sign a discretion clause. I don't know that you need the greatest investigative journalism skills to have kind of worked out what the story might be. So to a certain extent, I feel as though it's a squandering of journalistic standards. At the same time, Davos is going on. The World Economic Forum, which I think could do with a bit of expose, and the press almost uncritically just publish leading members of the same kind of elite business uh, collective talking absolute nonsense about uh, and and avoiding solving, uh, discussing problems, really serious problems like the crisis of productivity internationally, um, uh, actually saying that they're all in despair about Brexit you know, internationally, you do think, well, get over yourself. And, you know, you know, it's, it's, they're in a bubble there, which is not being punctured by the same in, um, um, uh, journalistic ethos. I, I think that there's more important things for us to worry about. And just on the young women, I think, and the debate about this and how it relates to women, young or otherwise, but young in this instance, you know, um, if you um, get offered a job as a hostess, and told what undergarments to wear, what kind of bra to wear, and uh, and to wear sexy um, uh, shoes. Um, and it's fair enough if you take the job. And I am not suggesting that you should expect to be groped, but you cannot expect to be joining the nunnery either. And you would, in fact, think to yourself, possibly I don't want to be a hostess. And the argument then is put to me, well, these young women didn't know that that was what was going to happen. Well, if we are actually rearing a generation of young women who, when they get asked to be a hostess with those kind of conditions, don't sort of have a whiff of concern, would be worried. Um, Secondly, um, they were not slaves on the night. They could have walked out. If you'd have gone and taken the job and made a mistake, they could have left. Um, they, They were not, you know hostage this is not a, a question of kind of sex slaves or you know kind of they they took a job and for some of them it was unpleasant it's worth noting that quite a number of the women who've done this job r- report that they've done it for a number of years it's a bit of a laugh and so not all women are saying the same thing it's not certainly something i'd get a laugh from but you know um there we go um so it's in danger here also of undermining women's agency, turning them into victims, undoubtedly in the context of uh, Me Too and time up, Time's Up and all this type of thing. You cannot say this, as I know to my cost, because I did say it on Sky Paper Review last night, without people behaving as though you've just uh, excused uh, um, uh, rape and sexual abuse and absolute terrorising of young women. And that is just not what happens. So we lose all sense of proportion, and I get nervous about that. And the final thing just is that in the conversations I've had and on social media as well, people are sort of saying this is the problem with men's only events. Now, I mean, are we now saying that all men's only events are the same, that we are going to demonise all men's only events? I don't know if anyone's ever been on an all-women's event. Uh, Some of them are called hen parties. Some of them just women's nights out. It can be quite leery 
it can be quite loud and it can sometimes take the form of uh, rather disparaging comments made about men and so on and so forth. So you just get to this point where every aspect of people's private decision making about how they spend their time suddenly gets swooped up in this moral panic and it is a moral panic. And so I don't think the consequences of this are going to be positive for anyone actually. Um, and therefore I, I'm, I'm nervous about what it re represents. Yeah, well, uh, it's interesting you talk about uh, the hen party phenomenon because I remember spending quite a terrifying lunchtime in Blackpool a few years ago walking along the front and the various hen parties walking along and uh, <laughs> thinking, what, you know, if they decide to pick on me, then, you know, what kind of terrible fate may await me. Um, so, yeah, that, yeah, especially hen parties of older women who, uh, yeah, they can certainly be quite terrifying. Um, I thought the um, the American comedian and talk show host Bill Mayer made um, some good points uh, this week about that, and he referred to it as discretion denial. Sorry, distinction denial. Um, I, I'm making this point that we're now conflating people who have been raped or sexually assaulted with or or pressurized into having sex for the sake of their career or or some other terrible um sort of consequence if they don't do it with grope, groping by drunken men for example at men only do's where um you know alcohol and metaphorical willy waggling is going on hence the the big bids for these auction items etc these are people showing off um conflating these two things and his uh, his nice phrase was I support me too. I don't support McCarthyism, uh, and so and anybody who has the nerve, like Matt Damon or Catherine Deneuve or whoever, to say I think this has gone too far. I think there are important distinctions that are being lost. Uh, are basically being pilloried uh, on social media and by various uh, commentators, um, and I think that that is a really really dangerous and worrying atmosphere uh, in which we exist at the moment. Yeah, I think, um, you know, when you go back to the, the original FT article earlier this week, it was interesting that they did note within that article, uh, it, was, it was quoted as, as uh, when the, the girls were briefed, they were, they were said, this is a Marmite job, basically. It's either something that you love or hate, and some people will like it, and some people hate it and never want to come back again. And that sense that uh, you... you uh, opt into this thing and then you have the option of withdrawing if you don't like it now seems to be completely lost so that when you have a column like in this morning's paper where Polly Vernon in the Telegraph uh, talked quite interestingly about uh, her experiences as a young sort of cocktail girl in her early 20s where she was uh, in, in similar sort of atmospheres but she said well did it damage me? Did it harm my steam? No because I, I milked these people for what I got I, and she, she gem demonstrated in, in that a, a sense that she was in control and and um, she treated the people with cruelty and and took what she wanted from it. So that sense that you can uh, control your life seems to be uh, on an, the, the Me Too thing seems to be um, completely uh, eradicating that sense that we can control our own lives and women can control their own lives. I think I think that you know people are saying you know isn't this shocking it's happening in 2018 and to a certain extent you you can say that now anyone knows that anything of this nature is not going to happen right so if you say as a 
as a sign of them not exactly having their finger on the pulse of contemporary society, um, then the organisers undoubtedly um, have kind of taken the rap for being idiots, right? But as I say, you see, I, I think we get preoccupied about what happened on that night as well. But for um, as Camilla Long indicated, uh, uh, Rob, you, you kind of drew, drew my attention to that. She calls it kind of the equivalent of FT clickbait, right? And there is, an, uh, you know, there is something else being lost, isn't there? Standards of journalism, you know, kind of, as I keep saying about the priorities and so on. But also there's now a whole debate and discussion around tainted money. And you get to this point about, what, you know, what's clean money then? You know, what, when, when those auctions are happening in every single instance, do you think that every time that kind of philanthropy happens, are we going to be kind of look, have a, a window on the soul to check that they're doing it for the right motives? Is every corporate donation and every kind of showing off, uh, kind of giving to charity now going to be like, oh, well, I can't possibly have that because it was done in the wrong circumstances? And if you look at something like the, uh, uh, the children's hospitals and so on that are doing such magnificent work with too little in by way in coffers trying to you know rustle together some money the idea that this kind of pressure exists for them to give it back seems to me to be shocking so a few sensible people have said um zoe williams to her credit sort of said you know tainted money it might be well you know take the muck and kind of use it wisely and and, and that's exactly right in the same spirit that you said, Alistair, about the young uh, women who might well have gone to these things, used it for their own ends, either just initially the 150 quid they were getting and the free drink, maybe got, you know, some part-time work out of it, guilt money, you know, whatever. Just just on the on on the things that you might take seriously. I mean, they were the, these young women were monitored on their toilet breaks. They they had to sign clauses that undoubtedly were kind of dubious in terms of employment. And there might be a, a serious point to be made about the gig economy. Um, there might be something to be said about young women needing the money. I, I get all that, right? And I think that that would be at least a, an earnest attempt at having a discussion about politics, about contemporary society. But I know it's all through this kind of slightly puritanical, moralistic tut-tutting veneer that makes me so nervous and always the young women are seen to be hapless hopeless exploited with no agency whatsoever and if that's the conclusion of this then women are going to lose out from this story far more than anyone else and the discussion of tainted money doesn't extend to these uh, rich men waking up in the morning and realising they've they've bid £5,000 to have lunch with Ian Beefy Botham or something like that and regretting it terribly because they've been, you know, plied with drink. Yes, yeah, the, the, the tainting only goes so far. Um, on to more uh, weighty matters and the government of the country. And um, there's been a, a quite a bit of discussion about the, the sort of... Um, moribund nature of the government it can it, it doesn't really know what it's doing about brexit and doesn't seem to to be doing very much about anything else either uh and with criticism uh, of theresa may that she's you know has no ideas and nobody in the government seems to have any ideas in general um what do we make of this discussion and should we be worried um, well, we seem to reach uh, the beginning of what, December last year when the first part of the agreement was put in place and there was almost a sense of relief that something had been achieved. But in the time since then, everything seems to have started unravel- un- unravelling again. And, and uh, I think the, the real sense that you get over the last 10 days or so is just the complete lack of momentum and understanding about how the government intends to uh, put in place the longer-term arrangements for, for, for Brexit. 
uh, to the extent just now where uh, this, the, you know, the Nick Bowles' suggestion uh, earlier this week or last week about the lack of ideas in government, I think, has sent them into a bit of a tailspin. And it doesn't. It, it's it's an accusation that I think holds weight and is is a fair one. But the solutions, even to that sort of accusation, seem wholly inadequate as well. They seem to uh, lend themselves only to a series of potentially trite policy announcements rather than grappling with the very big issues that Brexit raises, but also, I, I think, the opportunities that it presents as well. I mean, where is the where is the discussion just now on how breaking up the existing arrangements in terms of policy and regulatory terms can actually lead to a situation where we take advantage of new uh, the potential for new policy, the potential to be free of existing regulations in all sorts of areas from academia to manufacturing, to the environment, how we can um, take advantage of the fact that we have to reinvent those, those regulations and policies for uh, productive ends, that just that discussion just doesn't seem to be happening at all just now. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I thought, you know, it's been uh, much fun made of the fact that there's a kind of um, conversation taped with David Cameron, who, you know, obviously Arch remain a victim of the EU referendum which he set up um, he's over in Davos of course that's where the elite are if they're not partying um, but he's over in Davos and he apparently said oh you know it's interesting Brexit doesn't seem to have been as bad as I thought it was going to be and you know understandably the kind of uh, Brexit camp um, are very excited you know ha 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 you know your scaremongering didn't work and I'm, I'm glad to see that he's maybe recognised that but you know it's just not enough that, that we're in this kind of like it's not as bad as or it's worse than kind of uh, tit for tat thing going on and the fact that people kind of leapt, have leapt on that would indicate exactly the kind of dearth of really substantial ideas at the heart of this I was so frustrated as well that you know you then get kind of Boris Johnson um grandstanding I'm afraid and with his no we're going to have even more money for the NHS and I'm going to demand even more money and I think that the lack of imagination when somebody who's serious about Brexit which I am somebody who's now considered to be the person who could actually um, not betray a, a kind of proper Brexit can only think of doing more of the same with more money for the NHS. So it's not a radical rethink of health policy. It's not a let's think about all of the things that are thrown up by social uh, uh, social care, what leaving the EU would mean for how we organise our kind of care system. None of that, nothing. A piddling kind of suggestion for more money for the same thing. And every time the kind of policy suggestions come through, they lack imagination, they lack any heart. Now, of course, um, Sir Graham Brady, as he has been uh, dubbed, uh, who is the chair of the 1922 committee, the Backbenchers Committee, um, we hear he's under intense pressure from backbenchers to get rid of Theresa May. And I can understand that there's some uh, frustration at technocrat May in charge. I can understand all of those criticisms that say one of the problems is Theresa May doesn't believe in Brexit, and neither do most of the cabinet and most of the leadership of the Tory party. But even the idea that what we need is to oust the present leadership and put in who? Um, you know, the Boris Johnson that said, give us more for the NHS. I mean, that lacks... Uh, a big idea as well and I'm fearful that Brexit which could be such an inspiring kickstart to us rethinking everything in terms of a democratic mandate to relook at everything is being squandered in uh, pygmy 
uh, kind of approach to it. And that's on both sides. I mean, I, I have to say, um, it, it, it worries me that An- Andrew Adonis, um, Lord Adonis, who I, I have nothing for contempt for his contempt for democracy, sounds as though he's kind of thinking big with some of his anti-Brexit, I'm going to stop democracy ideas, just because he feels a bit daring. And what you've I've noticed with some of the Remain camp is that they're presenting themselves as kind of the dissidents now. They're the ones who are kind of really going to do the fight back. And I'm fearful that that will start to look attractive if what is associated with Brexit is so mundane, so empty, so vacuous, and ultimately will be betrayed by a lack of imagination and just kind of squandering the opportunity. There is a real sense of the the Brexiteers sort of having kind of ground to a halt in a way. I mean, Gove seems to be, have decided that he's going to try to make a decent fist of the environment department and play to all the right people. Johnson's just barking, you know, like populist as ever um, in, in the, the least good way. And there doesn't seem to be anybody there who's got any credibility left. Davis looks like a broken man um, who really just doesn't want to be in the middle of all of this. Um, And so there's nobody with any great substance or uh, authority pushing it. But at the same time, the Remainers, while nibbling around the edge of things and hoping that the steady grind of the negotiations will end up with something that's close to or in the single market and the customs union or whatever even if we don't actually stay in the eu but they they can't really come out and you know certainly the ones in cabinet can't come out because they're 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 all signed up to the idea that we brexit means brexit so we just have this kind of stasis at the moment not a lot happening at the um I'm glad to see, on the other hand, you know, when when some of the sort of figures of the past, like Tony Blair or Nick Clegg, try to pursue the matter, they are so tainted by their own failings in government that at least they don't have that much credibility. So there doesn't seem to be a great sort of Remainer figurehead who's leading the charge. But who knows what might happen? But it is disappointing that the sort of dynamism of the of the original vote and the, the, the possibilities of it are being squandered. Um, I, I think actually more significant even than um, Cameron saying it wasn't as bad as I thought um, um, was the big uh, Remain advocate Jim O'Neill who was a, a, an advisor to the government on, on um, business and very keen on Remain and basically said, you know, to my surprise actually economically this is... Brexit seems to have not destroyed the economy and actually, you know, given it a bit of a kickstart. I mean, I'm caricaturing what you said, but people have noted that. And the reason I mention that is because actually, you know, if you were serious now, you could, I think more and more people have accepted genuinely that Brexit is happening. It's just that when they accept that Brexit is happening, the real opportunities of Brexit can't happen without a real buying into it and a real enthusiasm for it. So I'm really pleased because I actually think Remain are actually, despite what I said about Adonis, slightly on the back front, increasingly small, kind of shrieking uh, from the sidelines, the kind of um, Remainers or the Remaniacs or whatever, the kind of hardliners. But when we were sort of sort of grudgingly sort of admit that possibly it's all right, that's not the same as grasping 
um, this, and uh, you know, in terms of um, you said about Gove, and I, and, and maybe this can kind of lead us to a, another conversation. But I was just so horrified that the kind of one big idea that was splashed all over the papers last week was, you know, Britain is actually serious about itself. Its big idea is it's going to launch a war on plastic and knives and forks, plastic and so on. And you think, God, I can't believe that they've sat around and thought, oh, big idea is to launch a war on plastics. I mean, you think there's a few things you might want to launch a war on or kind of sit around and really come up with exciting policy ideas. Is this it? And Gabe, it is true, is the only one who's even remotely got any of those ideas. But sadly, it's not ideas that I feel will inspire us into kickstarting the economy. Uh, yeah, well, just to go back to that, that the, the point on the economy, um, I mean, it, it's true, I think, that there is a sort of sense of satisfaction amongst Brexiteers that all the predictions, the project fear predictions of the economy collapsing after a, a vote to leave has not happened. And I think, you know, that's good and, and we should be pleased about that. But it does as well mask uh, or uh, it, it means that it, there's not a dis- enough discussion of the fact that there are actually very long term structural projects. Uh, problems with the economy and you know Carillion and and uh, the 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 troubles that are being experienced by these very large corporations and companies are to the point in terms of revealing that the state of the, the long term state of the British economy is one that's uh, troubled and and really needs addressing and that to me is the primary um, opportunity of Brexit is to really grasp the nettle in terms of some of these things and in that respect you know it's Boris's other uh, uh, big uh, pet project, the the bridge, that's the bridge to France that came about last week after the, the meeting with Macron, I think is a case in point here, because um, while it might have been a bit of a stunt announcement, actually it's not a bad idea in terms of, um, you know, uh, connect, physically connecting up two countries. I mean, yes, national sovereignty is one thing, but physical connections are a good thing and allowing trade and people to, to move between countries much more conveniently. And an initiative like that, that requires a fair bit of innovation, um, you'd have to do new things, has the potential actually to, to kickstart construction and, and to for us to be, be able to discover new things, to dis- discover new industrial processes that could have a fantastic um, uh, longer term effect in terms of the way that we do construction in this country. So you do, th- I just feel that the, the kind of instant cynical dismiss- dismissal of that idea was, was a bit of a problem because it, it seems to suggest that we don't really have the requisite ambition uh, to be able to change things. Yeah, I agree with all that. Um, the, 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 some people seem to be sort of uh, like getting the bunting out for how well the economy is doing. And it's not doing well, really. I mean, we're seeing growth rates possibly of 1.8% this year. That's nothing to write home about at all. In, in previous decades, that would probably be tantamount to a recession. To say that that's good is, um, is, is rather laughable. It's just that it's not as bad as uh, some of the remainers were trying to uh, present um, so that's good but the long-term structural problems as you say Caridian being a, a big story in the past week or two that just illustrates companies operating on th- wafer thin margins with stacks of debt uh, desperate to ha- cling on to government contracts at whatever price they can get for them 
Um, that's not a way forward for the British economy. There are many good things that are going on in the British economy, but there's a lot of stuff that we could we could uh, quite happily lose, and that would do do us the world of good. Uh, in terms of th- ambition, I mean, I, I, I like the idea of the bridge as well, but the first thing that they're going that they would suggest is, but it's got to be privately funded, and there's absolutely no way that it's ever going to happen privately funded because it's just not going to be a profitable exercise. I mean, the, the Channel Tunnel, I think the original investors lost 99.9% of their investment because it was a financial disaster. It's still not running at capacity even now. Um, obviously, a, a simple road bridge that you don't have to queue for, you just drive over, is going to make a huge difference to um, the amount of traffic that's going to use it. But uh, it would have to be done on the basis of it's a an important strategic in- infrastructural thing rather than because uh, anybody's going to make any money out of it. And I just think that that's the uh, sort of the, the low horizons of, of um, where we are at the moment, that's that, that people are not going to take a punt on something like that. Um, and as for the, uh, the, the, the announcements about plastic, I mean, that's just hilarious. Most, one of the most useful things we've ever invented a, so why would you want to declare war and, and like present natural alternatives if they're better? In fact, obviously, they use far more resources than plastics do. And actually using them is environmentally worse than plastics. Uh, so the, it's, it's, it, even in its own terms, it's bad enough. But as, as a symptom of a sort of anti-modern um, approach uh, to the world and the idea that you know, the environment must take precedent and our behaviour must be controlled... I think it's it's on so many fronts. I think it's just a really miserable vision of of what a government could be doing. Well, on the plastics thing as well, it's really struck me that those I would want to, um, you know, say, look, we shouldn't just kind of use sand bites and simplistic, you know, superficial virtue signalling. And you know, there's kind of a science behind this. You know, the number of people who've said, yes, I went to Australia and saw lots of plastic bags and bottles on the beach, and I came back and I was committed. I mean, you think what? Um, you know, it's kind of it's too shallow an analysis. And and there's been, I mean, the the Sky have done a campaign on plastic. The Daily Mail have done a campaign on plastic. I think the Express have various other people. I mean, the Standard say it's our campaign. Everyone's competing for whose campaign it is. Um, now, you know competition between all of the different supermarkets about who's going to be the anti-plastic first uh, everybody's coming out with we've we've got an important announcement to make you know no plastic spoons in your coffee shop anytime you know and what you realize is that this this really isn't a serious uh, uh, you know attempt at dealing with the challenges of waste. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to say, oh, well, you know, we don't want to, um, we don't want to mess things up, and let's look at this. But as you've rightly pointed out, Rob, it's not as simplistic. So those people who kind of would normally be the ones who'd say it's not simplistic populism that we want. You know, we don't want the kind of populism of Trump and all these people kind of like saying things just for effect and. They're actually doing that very thing. This is a kind of, it appears to be an easy uh, a solution to a, a, a complicated problem, an overstated problem in the first instance. I, 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 I think that in, in relation to, um, you know, big science breakthroughs, for example, that when you find out that in China, it looks as though now they can actually clone monkeys just being announced and this is going to have a major implication just happened. So what, what, what we are interested in, although, 
those people who are interested in science and policy and development and you know and the environment and and, and so on and so on. I want them working on this sort of thing. I want I want the kind of big breakthroughs, you know, bridges or otherwise. I I just think and if there's there's state money to be uh, spent, it's not on you know venturing in to teach children. Inevitably, that was the conclusion. How to um, use plastic sustainably? Uh, how to respect the environment? You know, plastic diminishing, uh, the plastic. Uh, uh, you know, blah blah. Um, I I just think, oh, there's just that's where the lack of ideas really is obvious, and the fact that they claim these as big ideas is what's worrying, and that then people are excited to say, yes, I back this. Um, so we need a far more critical uh, 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 engagement with those kind of questions.